0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor and memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rachel Weber Lesha, who is a Ramit at Midrash at Lindebaum and the Director of Digital Content at Teracheah, Women and Mitzvot. She's here to speak about Parshat Tazria, about the idea of ritual impurity contacted at childbirth. This week's Parsha discusses the impurity contracted by a woman during childbirth and on the way mentions the obligation to perform a brit milah on a baby boy and then moves to the laws of tzarat or scales disease, which can impact people, garments, or homes. Today, Rachel and I will be discussing the first section of the Parsha in Perigod Bet chapter 12, Impurity of Childbirth. Rachel, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you so much, Yosefa. It's a pleasure to sit down with you um, and talk about really the very first thing in this week's Parsha, which discusses the process that a woman undergoes after she's had a baby, specifically that she becomes ritually impure for a different amount of time, depending on whether she's had a baby boy or a baby girl. Um, But in general... The question of impurity, it's its a big one, but specifically for a woman who just had a baby, why should this be a moment where she is disconnected from god from all sorts of things that would require her to undergo a purification process and particularly I'll note that um many of the types of impurity including what Yosefa mentioned at the end of this week's parsha of Tsaraat uh, many types of impurity have something to do with death the most um highest level of impurity that we have is if someone comes into contact with a corpse but similarly all sorts of um, kind of physical ailments that a person might have or even a menstruating woman who becomes impure one could understand how this has to do somehow with something leaving the body some part of the body not being whole anymore um and yet childbirth is so obviously the opposite, right? Childbirth is bringing life into the world. If we understand impurity to have to have to do with death, how on earth could this woman be impure?
0: Yeah, you know, I'll, I would add a few things, which is that the question I think is heightened by the fact that when a woman gives birth, she is both Anita, meaning she is considered the status of being a menstruating woman. And she also has specific purity at, at childbirth for those who aren't aware of that sort of dual impurity. So I wanted to point that piece out. I also want to remind our listeners of an idea that we spoke about in last week's podcast with, uh, with Yao of this idea of ritual impurity versus moral impurity. Uh, childbirth along with Nida and with Zava, uh, and with certain elements of Kashrut, uh, are all items or moments in one's life where you contact impurity simply by, by virtue of being human, meaning you enter into that circumstance. It has spiritual ramifications. Um, You're sort of touching upon this idea that it almost feels like a punishment of distance, right? Because she can't go to the mikdash, she can't go to the temple area because she is impure, and so she's being she's being pushed away. Um But I also want to remind us that the flip side is this moral impurity. Moral impurity is sort of what we see later on in the book of, of Vaikra, more in Vaikra Yudchet, the 18th chapter of inappropriate sexual relations and other aspects as well. And those impurities are also much more difficult to eradicate from the body. These have sort of a very, the the ritual impurities we're speaking about now have a much clearer process of how they are contacted and, and how, and, and how they're able to remove them from your, from your body. Whereas more impurity is a much more complex process and it, it defiles people and it defiles land and the way to, the way to remove that isn't always so clear.
1: Exactly. So this woman, nobody is saying she's done anything wrong. Of course, she hasn't done anything wrong. And so the question is, what's the theological underpinning to saying that she has any type of impurity on her for just having given birth to a baby? So in a minute, I want to suggest an answer, um, which I learned um, from the writings of Rav Yehuda Hinken. Um, but before I get to his answer, he suggests a few answers that he saw elsewhere, which he Isn't as impressed by, but I want to suggest them just so we kind of cover the whole, the whole range of ideas. So he says, maybe one could suggest that, you know, uh, a woman who had a baby in her. So it was as if she has sort of two lives in her and now one life has left. So maybe that's sort of going down in a, you know, some amount of vitality, or maybe when a baby is born, when a person is born, it's the beginning of their life, but some might compare it also to the beginning of death, right? It's a person is sort of always, in a sense, on their way towards death. The countdown begins when you're born. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I had never thought of that, to be honest, before I read this idea. It is quite striking to think of our mortality that way. And the other answer that he suggests is that in a way a pregnant woman has some kind of partnership with God in creating this baby. And when the baby's born, that partnership ceases. And so maybe the impurity has something to do with a decrease in the level of partnership between this woman and God. In a moment, we'll We'll hear a different answer that takes a very different perspective, but these are some of the ways of looking at um, where this impurity stems from.
0: You know, it's also interesting because you said before, well, clearly this this isn't a punishment, but Hazel do highlight a certain aspect of that, which I'm going to bring up even though you know me to bring it up. <laughs> Uh, they do bring up that element, and it's of course connected later to the chatat, which we one can call it a sin offering. Although I mentioned also in previous podcasts that others call it a purification offering. Right? Why does she have to bring a chatat? Has she performed anything wrong? And and I'm bringing this idea up because when Chazal there say, well, it's because when she was in childbirth, she clearly swore that she would never have more children because it was so painful, and and later on she's not going to keep that that oath of hers. Um, and so there is an element of sin, quote unquote. I just think that it's interesting that Chazal do add that kind of commentary. I mean, they do go down that, that route of trying to find something that was wrong here. Um, but those two answers that, uh, that Rev Henkin offers, um, which he calls, you know, their their they He says they're very, very odd. He sort of removes them at, from the, from the realm of possibility. It's funny because when I read them, I they actually deeply resonated with me, and I'll I'll tell you a story about that, which is that um, I think that by the time I don't remember if it was my I think my third um, pregnancy, and many women have a real disgust for like they'll always talk about chicken or or certain kinds of foods right when they're pregnant, um, and when I definitely by the time I was pregnant with my third. I felt it was very clear to me that anything that any food item that came from something living, which we would call vegan today, utterly disgusted me. Like I lost all taste. And then I, and then I went thought back to previous moments in my, in my childbearing years that had been prior. And I realized that that, that was a theme. Uh, and I started to sort of track it. And I, I, it, to me, it became very clear that I, was growing life inside of me, and I did not want to consume other things that had been living. And what's interesting is that while after my third child was born, when that happened in my fourth pregnancy, I, I never got over it. And I, I'm vegetarian now, meaning I'm not vegan, wow. but I'm vegetarian. And it very much stemmed from that very visceral. I don't have the disgust anymore once those hormones kind of once they once <laughs> they pass, <laughs> normalized. Thank God. But but it was a very visceral experience for me that stayed with me after the fourth. And and I so I was basically vegetarian in my third pregnancy and then after that wasn't and then went back to it at my fourth and then never never stopped. Um so so I actually re- it resonated with me that that first idea of his. But I also the other piece, also that resonated, is that his his idea where he speaks about that you have this partnership with God, and that part that partnership ends essentially when a child is born. And another personal story is, and I'm I'm sharing them because I can imagine I'm not the only one. Meaning, not because I think this story is particularly significant, but it maybe it's it's helpful for others. Which is that I'm not an anxious person. It's not my it's not my go to. I have plenty of other negative methods to cope in the world, but but anxiety <laughs> is not one of them. But one of the two scenarios in life that makes me anxious is one of them is flying and one of them is being pregnant. Um, and it's because I feel tremendous responsibility by the way, not inappropriately, but like I feel tremendous responsibility sure. for like the health of this child that there's also so many elements that I can never be in, in control of. But, but I feel very acutely that again, I partnership is a nicer way to put it, but I feel very acutely that responsibility and I always have such. I always say I'm like have the lowest risk ever of postpartum depression because I'm always so thrilled to be postpartum that I I'm like okay this child's out in the world I have a huge part in it but it's 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 also my husband is much more of a of an equal partner now not really right but much more of an equal partner and and for me. I really resonate with that concept of,
1: of the partnership. It's also finally not 24 seven. Even, <laughs> even if you are feeding a baby yeah. from your body, you still can take a break and not have the baby literally in you. And yeah. I very much felt that, right? That there is some, some kind of separation after a child exits from your body that really does change, totally. change the way you feel. But let me see if I can convince you. Yeah,
0: well, let's move on to his, his idea. I just wanted to say that his his ideas that he sort of rejects that also, I'm not so sure that they're very familiar to everyone listening in the audience, that I think that they they also have their place. Um, but let's, yeah, what's the answer that he actually thinks so, is the convincing one?
1: So all of the answers that we just discussed stem from an assumption that there is a direct parallel between impurity and death. And so if a woman who just had a baby um, is impure, it must be because there's something death related about giving birth to a child. And Rav Hankin says, no, that's not that's not the point. We have to take a different perspective. And he says, I understand why somebody might think this, because God does not die. God is eternal, right? And so we think that something that is not godly has something to do with death. They are sort of opposites of each other. But if you don't mind, I'm going to read just one line. Um, this, this idea is in, um, responsa bnei banim part four, essays, the 22nd essay at the end of the, at the end of the book. He writes, Lidati la lohutsga In my opinion, the whole question hasn't been presented properly. HaKadosh barahu Hu Einu Met, Aval Hu Gam Lo Nolad. God does not die, but He also was not born. Lo Livada Levada Omede Benigud Habore Hakeyam LaAd. Ella Hishtal Shelut Hadorot Kula LeDa Umita KaAchat Omede Bestira L'Nitzchiyuto Yitz Barach. It is not just death that stands in contrast to God's eternal existence, but also the development of generations. Both birth and death stand in contrast to God's eternal being. His suggestion here is that there are a few different types of things that a a human being can experience that make them um distant from God or need to take a step back from God. And death is the most obvious one. Death is a moment of crisis. Death is a moment where people often instinctively feel distant from God. But God also puts rules into the world that say, You are going to take a step back from my temple, from my presence at certain moments throughout the human experience. But it's not just things having to do with death. It would also be birth because birth in its essence is something that God cannot do because God never needs birth. God never needs regeneration. God never needs something new because he is so eternal. And therefore, as opposed to the perspective that says a pregnant woman is in partnership with God and then the partnership ends. Rav Hinkin is suggesting that childbirth is actually ungodly in the sense that it is something that God could never do. And when a woman gives birth, she's undergoing such a human, such a physical scenario, such an undertaking, um, that she needs to be separated. And then undergo a process of purification to allow her to come back and reconnect to the eternal. Yeah, I <laughs> yes, doesn't like this.
0: She's making <laughs> no, faces. I no, I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a few reasons. First of all, I think that if let's let's take a more academic perspective. That if I go and think of the other kinds of impurities that exist in, in the book of Vayikra, So I have to go and think, are all those experiences that make someone impure or all of them related to an intense experience of physicality that we would say remove somebody from the divine realm, right? That's essentially what he's saying. Yeah. So some of those, some of the examples really, they do fit well. Um, and, and it's, you know, I have to think about it more. Maybe they really, they all, they all fit very well with that example. I guess it still is hard for me because it presents, childbirth which i agree is an intensely physical experience but there are also many who strive and or experience it as something much greater than that meaning dafka for them it's this moment of incredible divinity um so you know some experience it as almost like a yom hadin it's almost mm-hmm. like a rosh of sorts because it's both uh you're aware of the fine balance between life and death but there also is a birth that's happening um I don't, I don't not like it. I just think that I'm, I, want to be so careful about the, about the vibe or the, the atmosphere that we sort of imbue childbirth with. But if he's saying that all of these experiences, essentially, whether it's being a Nida or a Zav or some sort of, you know, some sort of skin ailment, these are, or, or coming in contact, of of course, with a corpse that all these are experiences that define us as utterly human and then in that sense it just removes us to a certain degree from god but i guess it kind of to me goes against i would say a more hasidic or even kabbalistic perspective of i'm going to bring god into all of those moments so i don't not like it i just think that there's there's elements of it that um that i don't i don't like that it causes me to feel distant from god
1: I hear that. What I like is that it allows, I think, for a variety of human experiences, because even somebody who does experience birth as a spiritual moment, I think we still would not want that to take place literally in the Beit HaMikdash, let's say. It's still going to be something that that requires uh, a recovery period, right? Even a woman who has a positive experience needs some time, needs some space to sort of process what has gone on. And I kind of appreciate this perspective as saying, sometimes we need space from ritual, and then we may come back to ritual, Um I really liked a quote that I saw um where Rev Henkin described his idea of what pshat is. So Rav Yudah Henkin, Zihun Racha passed away um just over a year ago. He was married to Rabani Chana Henkin and together they founded the Nishmat um center for um, women's learning, and he was, he wrote many books of Shutim and was a, a Responsile leading... Responsile literature. responsible literature, uh, leading um, halachic decisor in many areas having to do with um, women and Jewish law, but also um, wide-ranging wide ranging topics. And
0: he came from a very illustrious rabbinic family himself, meaning comes from a grandfather and grandfather who also were tremendous poski.
1: Exactly. Um, and towards the end of his life, um, a book of his commentary on... Um, Torah was published, edited by his son, Rav E. Hengen, who was killed in a terrorist attack a few years ago. So in that book, he tries to bring a uh, shot – Simple text-based interpretation to stories um, in the beginning of the Torah, Bereshit and the beginning of Shemot. Um, one of the things that makes the book unique is his was his willingness to bring in modern scientific knowledge, archaeological information, psychology into his um, analysis of the stories at the beginning of um, at the beginning of Hamishah L'mshei Torah. Um, and he once said that he understands pshat to mean. It restricts itself to the necessary, the plausible, and the minimal. He felt like he was going to comment on something if there was no better commentary available. And that was what I really appreciated in his idea about the the impurity of the childbearing woman, which was I think he actually looked at the text and looked at the previous answers and felt like there was a piece missing. He felt like the world was waiting for another answer. And I sort of think about this often in a world in which people are constantly writing books and incredible works of commentary on Torah are still coming out thousands of years later and sort of this question of, do we still need more? And the answer is yes. Sometimes people find spaces where they feel like more is necessary. And so I love sharing an idea that maybe nobody had said yeah. until, you know, the past, you know, the past century or the past couple of decades. Um, I think that that's something really powerful.
0: Yeah, you know, sometimes sometimes people are recycling, most of the time, people are recycling <laughs> old ideas, but in, in a frame with words, with language that are relevant to the generation. I don't think that has any less value, but I agree with you that there's something very cool about how thousands of years later, somebody could offer an idea that maybe actually was never written down until now.
1: Yeah, Anyways. and I think also again as two women sitting here thinking about our experiences of childbirth right the conversations that we have now are just different maybe as you're saying just in the language that we use even if some of the underlying ideas are similar the way that we talk about these things the way that women bring their experiences into these conversations in ways that might have been sort of in the background previously and now are are in the foreground i think that that's you know a really positive thing especially for conversations around you know childbirth Etc. If you don't mind, I want to add in one of my favorite anecdotes Um, just to get back to this question of the godliness of childbirth or the physicality of it. So my first son was born in New York before we moved to Israel. Um, and when I was pregnant, my husband and I took a childbirth class. And because of timing, we did a one-on-one class with a woman who was a childbirth educator. And we went to her home for like a intense like what to expect when you're having a baby course and before you sign up for the course you fill in some kind of form explaining your background and all sorts of things so i we come to her house um and she's clearly Irish Catholic, literally speaks with an Irish accent, crucifixes in her home. We're like, okay. And she was so excited to be talking to an Orthodox couple. She's like, I did research on Jewish birth practices. Do you have a list of the Psalms that you're planning to recite while you're in labor? And I was like, I was hoping that someone was going to put a needle in my back to make the pain go away. I was, I'm here for the like, how do you know when to go to the hospital? And I'm like, how do you know if you need a C section? Not like the religious preparation, but she was such a religious person herself that it was obvious to her that somebody from a different religion would, would connect, would bring spirituality into that moment in their way. And to be honest, I found it inspiring. Um, and there are many who do say Teelim, if not the husband more than
0: the wife, but there are many who do say Teelim.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I thought, you know what? Like, I will add that to my to-do list. It was only funny to get it from the person who I thought was supposed to be preparing me for the physical experience. And, you know, I wasn't prepared for her spiritual guidance as well, but it, it really did remind me just how different people approach these moments in their lives with such different expectations and how even, you know, sitting in a room with women who've gone through it, they will describe it in such different ways um you know for some what a beautiful moment and for some i'm so glad that that's over and everything or a the comi- a combination of a, combina- all of a combination yeah. every time you tell it the story changes you emphasize yeah. different things um and yet this idea of the impurity right sort of says like take your time to process that's really what i what i love about this idea that says, take your time to process and then begin a process of sort of coming back to kind of where you were because childbirth changes you in some way, everybody in a different way. But I always felt like I needed some time to myself to kind of figure out where I am before I could reenter the world really.
0: So you're saying that to you, the, the, impurity or the, the tum'ah that the woman experiences post childbirth is part of this need also to to stay away from society for a little while. Meaning it's funny because today you have both movements. You have the world where we're going to let the woman have her own space and then you have other women who are they just want to rush back as quickly as they can to like do their life the way it was before. And I, I agree with you and here I, I I'm sorry if it sounds judgmental, but I agree and I definitely have learned, my, you know, in my own experiences, that the need to take a step back and to disconnect from all of that, and not try and be functional anytime soon, is I think a healthier approach. Uh, I think that it's it's utterly necessary for everybody. That time frame means something different, but the Torah has its own calculation of, of how that time frame should look
1: also it creates ritual for coming back. This is what I think is so beautiful and really can be translated into something that modern women can experience, which is that the Torah says, you know, you take this amount of time, then you go through a purification process and then you come to the Beit HaMikdash, you come to the temple to bring a sacrifice in what is really a celebration of where you are and what you've achieved and what I think are the most most powerful moments. After childbirth are the moments where we re-enter spaces and where people are waiting to celebrate us. So whether it's when a woman goes to shul to say birkatha gomel after having had a baby and people are there to welcome her and to respond to her bracha, or whether it's a family that chooses to make, you know, some kind of party to celebrate whatever baby it is that they have, or the first day back at work when a group of colleagues, you know, brings in a cake and says, we're so happy to have you back. I think the idea is to mark those moments with ritual and with community and with openness to different experiences, but not leaving the woman alone for it, right? Giving Mm -hmm. her her time and then saying, when you're ready, we will welcome you back in. And we do it communally, but we also do it with God. We, We wait until we're ready and then we sort of reconnect to things that maybe we didn't have we didn't have the ability to do the first time you stand up to say Shmona Esrei, right? The first time you daven in the morning after having a baby, because certainly it takes some time till till you're in a place where you can do that. That's a powerful moment. I and mean, I think we should we should talk about that. We should praise that. We should encourage that. The laws
0: of Dam Tohar are ones that we're not familiar with today because Halacha has changed and developed since the time of the Torah. But what it essentially stated is that a woman after seven or 14 days could go to the mikvah and would be considered to um And that if she would bleed any time in the uh, 33 or 66 days after, depending on if it was a boy or a girl, it wouldn't render her ritually impure. Um, that fact obviously is something that women know on themselves that it takes more than a week or two to recover from childbirth. Um, but the Torah express the fact that that blood although it's obviously from the same source as the previous one wouldn't render her impure.
1: I think um everybody knows that you don't wake up one day and suddenly, you know, you're completely recovered physically, emotionally and spiritually from, you know, a huge experience that you just went through and we we should celebrate the milestones and we should, you know, encourage people to sort of take baby steps and do something that feels good and I don't know, I always think the first time that you go out you Go out for coffee, right? After having a baby, maybe you have the baby with you, and people are like, oh, wow, it's so amazing to see you out and about. And I always remember thinking, well, this is the only 15 minutes I'm going to be wearing not slippers for the <laughs> day, right? This this is a tiny little moment, yeah. right? But you're right that the halakha actually acknowledges that it's not an all or nothing. And by by bringing a, a spiritual lens to these moments in our lives, I think that it can be um, empowering, helpful, and sort of provide scaffolding for people who sometimes are, are looking for a little bit of help in understanding what's going on in their upside-down world. Totally.
0: Uh, Rachel, thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Really beautiful. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. do one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners you can stream and download these episodes on spotify itunes google Podcasts, soundcloud and matan's website don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il that's podcast at matan.org.il thanks for listening everyone